being being Scottish and not wanting to put any sort of uh, stereotypes on things, Dave, but um, <laughs> he was the go-to point for porridge when porridge oats arrived from the Red Cross <laughs> for the guy to make up Quite right. your oats. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, uh, Prisoner War Escapes. Hosted by me, Dave, the history nerd. And me, Dave, the tech geek. And today, I, I swear, Dave, you're doing this on purpose with the names. Um, but we are looking at another person with a fantastic name um, by the name of Sandy Gunn is going to be our main topic of conversation to begin with today. I'm, I'm particularly excited about this episode because we actually have a guest with us today. Uh, mm. We are delighted to welcome Tony Hoskins. Hello, Dave. Hello. And Dave. Hello. <laughs> welcome. Um, Tony, do you want to give some of your background on this? Oh, wow. Okay. So, um, yeah, so I, whilst I'm not quite at tech nerd or, or history nerd. Um, so I've spent uh, the best part of probably 30 years following uh, aviation history in particular, but military history. And I've had a fascination with the entire subject. And I've been lucky enough that I've worked with a lot of veterans. Uh, and I've done a number of projects, some prisoner of war related and uh, a lot aeroplane related. And I'm fortunate enough that uh, my living uh, nowadays in particular is very much uh, linked to this particular subject matter so um, yeah I've had uh, I've been very lucky very fortunate uh, and I spend a lot of time uh, writing books so I've published five <laughs> books now on similar subjects mostly technical but uh, aviation related including one on Sandy himself including one on Sandy again which is why I'm here <laughs> <So. Wonderful. laughs> absolutely wonderful um, no I'm really looking forward to this episode so thank you very much for joining no us problem at all um, so yeah, do you do you want to? The, in many ways, the the floor is yours. Yeah, well, uh, do okay. you want to talk us through Sandy Gunn? Yeah. So Sandy, Sandy is a man who I've come to know on paper over the last sort of two years, and it's incredible, really, because I've spent so long researching this man and and following his life and going to places where he's been and brought up and studied that uh, I know more about him than many people who are very close to me which in a way is quite is quite sad but uh, it just goes to show that if you you can pick up on a particular story and follow that story the 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 information that comes out from things that happened back in the war and that people mm. went through and did is just incredible and uh, you find yourself following the next link and the next link and the next <laughs> link and it, and it just grows from there so um we're very fortunate that one of Sandy's uh, distant relatives is still still with us, and uh, he uh, so it's his nephew uh, via his brother, and uh, he's been fantastic at providing the information that the the family have, and I've managed to run with it from there and go to educational establishments and uh, pull up his service record, and luckily he kept a diary, which is <laughs> which is is fantastic. <laughs> so handy, <laughs> you can really find out what the guy was like. But um, so Sandy. Was uh, yeah, who, he was who born was Sandy? <coughs> so he was born at Alistair Donald Macintosh Gunn uh, on the twenty seventh of very Scottish name, name yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, on the twenty seventh of uh, September nineteen nineteen in a little town in Scotland called Octorado, which I believe you know very well. I do. I grew up about thirteen miles away. <laughs> yes. Uh, so he was the son of uh, the doctor 
in the village, and he was home educated, should we say, for the, for the first 10 years uh, with his brother. And the two were then sent off to, now you're going to have to forgive me, is it Fetters? Fetters. Yep. Fetters, that's yep. it. So he went there. Uh, he excelled very much at sport. He was very, uh, a very sporty, sporty guy. Cricket team, rugby team, captain. Uh, and uh, the schools have been fantastic in providing some of his educational records, including comments in the, uh, uh, the sort of school newspaper essentially suggesting that uh, whilst he was very good at cricket, um, perhaps his future lay in more sporty activities than, 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 ac than academic. <laughs> um, but still, he, you know, he was very keen to become an engineer, mm -hmm. which is something very, very close to my, uh, my heart, obviously. And uh, he was trying a number of options. And it's very interesting looking at his, his family history because I don't know whether it was a thing of the generation, but his father spent most of the time writing to various places on his behalf. Okay. And his father managed to secure a apprenticeship at uh, the Harland and Wolf shipyards in Glasgow. Okay. Uh, so Sandy, originally thinking he was going to sit history, uh, to just because it interested him, uh, decided to change tact, took this uh, position at uh, the shipyards, and uh, he headed off there. I, I see from the letters there were various notes from his supervisor suggesting that after about eight or nine months in this role, he might want to go and broaden his academic knowledge of various bits and pieces. And uh, he had his heart set on Cambridge. He sat an entry interview for Pembroke College in Cambridge, which was doing a lot of engineering at the time. Mm -hmm. He uh, managed to persuade them to, to let him in. What sort of time is this? So this is about 1937, 1938. Okay. Uh, so I've got some letters from around Christmas of 37. Um, and he eventually started in the uh, autumn term of 1939 at uh, Pembroke College. And he moved down to Cambridge. And I've got to say, Pembroke have been absolutely fantastic with their archive of letters, um, his application form, <laughs> how he managed to pay for it all. Um, the only thing they didn't have, unfortunately, was the house where he stayed. There's lots of letters referencing him living in Cambridge, but there was no actual record no of actual where he lived, oh. which I was desperately trying to find. Yeah, so he uh, he went there for the term, but of course the clouds of war are forming, mm -hmm. you know, just a week before he, he entered Pembroke, we declared war on Germany. And uh, in January of uh, 1940, he elected to join the RAF Volunteer Reserve. Uh, and I've got the record of him travelling over to Cardington, just outside Bedford, which is a reasonable trek for 1940 when, when mm. war was declared. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's 40 minutes nowadays yeah. by car. <laughs> and uh, he signed up there. Uh, and, of course, he realised they were going to get called up. But he wasn't actually called up until the July of okay. 1940. And he did manage a, a couple of terms at Pembroke. And there's a, a very solemn letter to the, uh, to the dean of the college uh, from just after Easter essentially saying that uh, the preoccupation of potentially what was likely to occur uh, with the way the war was going meant that he was rather distracted from his studies and he effectively asked for three months leave from the uh, the college to just get himself together in right. case he was likely to be called up and they did actually grant it and they, they left his position open there's a letter coming back saying that when the war is over we will hold your position and you can come back and carry on with your course uh, for any time after a year after the war was finished so obviously everyone still thought mm. it was not going to be something that was going to be <laughs> particularly long lasting yeah. um, so he was able to take his leave from the college and he returned back home 
Uh, and then in the July of 1940, he was called up and he travelled down to Bexhill-on-Sea, which was the initial training wing where they would have sat there uh, initial exams uh, on air law. They'd have learned about drill and how to press their uniform and all the all the things that you do in the military when you join. Basic uh, training. Basic training. Yeah. But of course, July 1940, South Coast Bexhill. It's mm. getting a bit punchy down there mm. at that kind of time. So very quickly, especially uh, for airmen. Especially for <laughs> airmen. So uh, I think he was only there for about three weeks, off the top of my head, before they got moved down to Paynton in Devon which is okay. a little bit quieter. Uh, and he carried on his initial training there. And having passed all of that, he was then selected for pilot training because they did a lot of their sorting at the mm. initial training wings. Uh, and he was sent up to RAF Anstey, which is just between Coventry and Birmingham, where he did his initial flying training on Tiger Moths. And from there, he went over to Grantham in Lincolnshire mm -hmm. uh, to carry on. And he converted on to ferry battles towards the end of 1940. This then led on to training for a detachment and with the Battle of Britain over and fighter command reduced to a defensive role, mm -hmm. bearing in mind Germany had air superiority from the channel yeah. uh, uh, east and southwards. So um, <laughs> we certainly became a, effectively a home defence yeah. and you know we were reliant very heavily on American supply route coming from there. So he was selected to go to coastal command. And he was trained up to fly Aberansons, and Coastal Command were uh, very much monitoring for submarine activity uh, on the supply routes into sort of Liverpool and that area. Um, and that, of course, takes great skill in navigation over the sea. Mm. And what became apparent from going through his notes was that he only did 16 missions for Coastal Command. Was this heading out over towards the Atlantic then? Yes. So, so over so Ireland and... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. North of Ireland and uh, they very shortly moved from Hooton Park uh, and then they moved up to Scotland because obviously they were trying to get further north mm -hmm. with coming in from Newfoundland via Greenland yeah. uh, and down that way. So they were watching the routes coming in. So they were doing a lot of navigation over water which involves um, times, distances and calculation for wind and he, he excelled greatly at this and he became to the attention of his commanding officers who said well if people are pretty good on solo navigation we've got another little role within coastal command for these guys as a result of which in the summer of 1941 he, he was picked for a transfer and that transfer was to the photo reconnaissance unit which was okay. a very new very specialist very niche very niche <laughs> unit yes uh based at the time at RAF Benson and and I think actually probably the the Photo reconnaissance unit on its own is a is a topic for <laughs> for something. But uh, I mean, in a nutshell, by 1941 we had cracked the Enigma code. But the sheer volume of messages that were coming in meant that it was often taking up to sort of three days to process these messages. So, you know, unless the Germans were putting out a message of we're going to do this, it was very much sort of reactionary. What has happened? What has moved where? Yeah. And then, of course, we did have the spy network and the resistance network, but that, of course, comes with its own risks. Often the spies are very confined to a certain area. It relies on them being able to get radio or messages out. So, again, it's not instantaneous intelligence. Mm. And, you know, having been pushed back from, from Dunkirk, really the only way that we could understand what was happening on the enemy side would be eyes on that could report back as quickly as possible. So very shortly before the war, the photo development unit mm -hmm. uh, had been formed at Heston, 
which had a couple of modified Spitfires and a civilian Electra, which was... By, by modified. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let, let's go into a bit of detail well, on this. <laughs> yeah. Spitfire was obviously designed for um, fighting. Mm. So it had guns in it. Didn't carry an awful lot of fuel because it didn't need to mm-hmm. do particularly long trips. Um, but it was one of the best single-seater weapons we had in our arsenal at the time. So uh, the idea was they wanted some single-seat, fast, fairly sleek, manoeuvrable aeroplane to be able to get in and out of uh, enemy territory uh, mm. as undetected as possible uh, to take a photo and come back again. So they took all the guns out of it, took the radio out of it, and they took the armour plate out of it, and they <laughs> filled it up with fuel. And the very early ones, they managed to get a bit of extra time out of it, <coughs> but they slowly developed you know, not specific aeroplanes until much later, but they were effectively modifying fighter aircraft and some combat, you know, ex-combat fighter aircraft to uh, carry out the role. And in particular, the the photo development unit was bringing back a lot of very good information. Mm -hmm. So at the end of 1940, when they got bombed out of Heston, they were moved to Army of Benson and they had a change of command structure and they sorted things out a lot more, became a lot more official uh, and controlled, and they started to bring in specifically modified Spitfires and then actually production uh, photo reconnaissance aeroplanes that had leading edges full of fuel. And they extended the range effectively from 500 miles to 2,000 miles. That's a big increase. Big increase (laughs) in the same aeroplane. So the photo reconnaissance unit was really born because it could take photos and report back the same day and their knowledge of uh, photography was just incredible because they they used black and white (coughs) because it was easier to assess shadows from a black and white photo which then meant that when they used a stereoscopic system of having two photos offset Mm -hmm. they could effectively create using that method with the shadows as well a 3d image i was going to say that's almost 3d isn't it it is so it's a 3d image which then could be measured so you could get the height of things and they worked out that there were particular times of day so there were times of day early in the morning and late at night where they couldn't take photos because of the elongated shadows gave them different different measures of things um but what it didn't do is it meant you had to fly in a straight line to take these photos (laughs) and particularly if you were going a long way into enemy, enemy territory you had to fly all the way over enemy territory take the photos, turn around and fly all the way back over where you've just flown before. Over the same path. Yeah, so if you hadn't woken up the enemy before, (laughs) you certainly woke them up on the way back. And, you know, by the time that Sandy was flying for the photo reconnaissance unit, most of the German defensive air bases were, of course, around the coast, which is where they needed to be. And there's a lot more bomber bases set further back. Now, if you're going to fly to, um, say, Stettin or something like that, you're going to alert a lot of people yeah. along the coast. <laughs> all, all without armour. All without armour. Guns. guns. No way <laughs> yeah. to defend yourself apart from the speed that you had. And a, and a very scary camera. <laughs> and a very scary camera. Um, and, uh, yeah, so if you were spotted and seen, um, then there was a large chance that you were going to be intercepted, if not on the way out, then certainly on the way back. And that's the biggest thing with the photo reconnaissance unit is that these were solo operations, largely, at that point in the war. So you had guys going out who were effectively booking a slot, for want of a better word, with the sort of defence, the ACAC defences on the coast, say, I'm leaving at this point at this time, mm. and I'm heading out this road, and I should be coming back in <laughs> two, three, four hours' time along this route, um, because there was no way of communicating on their way back. 
and we had some primitive radar traces that could foresee something potentially coming in. But the fact is that once you were dispatched off on a trip, you were if you were a casualty, you were generally never heard of. You just didn't mm. arrive back. And that's the biggest thing. So if they dispatch somebody, technical reliability back then was not fantastic. Um, no the, black box. No black box, no. Uh, and dare I say it, relatively hurriedly built machines in mm -hmm. far from ideal conditions because the the main factory at Southampton had of course been bombed out in 1940 so it was dispersed factories being built in garages in multiple locations over towns by relatively unskilled labor it's amazing but what you can build in the garage though it is amazing <laughs> what you can build in the garage <laughs> yeah so true. yeah so basically in a large number of cases guys were dispatched off to go and take a photograph and then wouldn't return mm. and you can tell there's there's the operational records book for the photo reconnaissance unit does uh, hold an awful lot of information where you can say so and so was dispatched on a trip and failed to return and then three or four days later they might have notification via the red cross that there's somebody been captured um but in the large number of cases nothing would come through and and that's the thing so whilst Whilst the statistics for the photo reconnaissance units are incredibly shocking, mm. with that as well is the majority of those that were lost have no known grave. Mm. Because if their engine failed coming back across the North Sea, they're never going to be found. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of these things with defences on the coastal ports, as you're operating as a single aeroplane, you know, because you, you bear in mind, until the Americans joined the war, we weren't doing very much over Europe. Battle of Britain had been won, we'd retreated back. So other than the odd um, sort of propaganda leaflet dropped by Blenheim um, or a few little intruder raids to here and there, generally the Germans held superiority over the continent apart mm. from the odd Spitfire heading down to take a photograph <laughs> of something. And uh, I was just saying, and presumably, or the the craft that never made it back, you never received the photographs that they were going to absolutely, take. yeah, yeah. So if you then wanted to still have that photograph, you've then just highlighted to the Germans that someone may well be just coming in that exact same route. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and they did do. Um, there were various ones. So um, daily, they were mapping the French ports for ship movements because right. obviously they'd had the build up for Operation Sea Line, and they noted that there was a build-up of landing craft, but where do those landing craft go? Yeah. When sea lines cancel, where, mm. where have they moved to? Where are ships moving to? And uh, you know, the weather weather in the winter of 1940 and generally through 1941 was pretty poor. Mm. And uh, particularly with Enigma, like I say, taking days to, uh, to decipher, a lot of things could happen. And if you were unable to fly for a week because of weather over a certain area... Um, a lot of things could change. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of ships being moved around, particularly when the Germans invaded uh, Russia. Um, you know, there was worries that the Russian fleet was going to make a move out into the Baltic. Uh, and a lot of the German Navy got split split up to, uh, to try and fight a war on two fronts. So we needed as much information as we could. And you can carry a lot of information back from one trip in a Spitfire if you're covering mm, three, yeah. four, five hundred miles. Um, it's uh, you can take a lot of photos, and these yeah. cameras did have. I mean, by the time, by the time you got to sort of Sandy's time, they're carrying three three cameras, um, you know, with five hundred rounds per 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 camera. So <laughs> wow. um, you can bring a lot of information, and the the archive up in Edinburgh has millions mm. of photos on file wow. that they were producing. So the, these photos were then taken. Am I right in thinking they went to Med Medmenham? Medmenham, that's yeah. right, just outside Henley. Um, so. Uh, Initially, the PRU had bases at, at Benson, 
which is a grass airfield. Then they had a satellite down the road, which was RAF Mount Farm, which had some concrete runways, which was good for winter operations. Then you had uh, a base down in Cornwall, which was doing a lot of the French ports as far as the sort of Spanish border. Yeah. And then uh, you had Lucas and Wick in Scotland as well, which were pushing out to Norway. But obviously that was right on the limit of range of mm. these aeroplanes. Yeah. I mean, Lucas is Fife Coast. And Wicks right up in the north of Scotland, you know, right. north, what far north of Inverness? Even. That's right. But it's even then, that's still it's a long way. It's a long old way. <laughs> that's a long old way. And they were heading down, sort of. They could do the northern ports of Denmark because there was a lot of. Uh, mm. And they obviously got Kiel. Kiel can have big industrial centres for for shipbuilding and ship repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Norway, which obviously we'd retreated from Norway in 1940 as well, and uh, was a fairly big German stronghold. Yeah, so, you know, Sandy was posted there because they needed guys. The attrition rate was really high. He went to Lookers first, didn't he? And then went up to Wick. Well, he was, so he was Benson to start off with. So right. he arrived in Benson in September 1941, mm-hmm. having never flown a Spitfire, flown a ferry battle. Um, now, my understanding was from his stories, you know, he was a young guy. He's, he's sort of 21 years old. Um, he enjoyed his parties and his socialising. <laughs> and I think 48 Squadron, which he'd been on uh, as part of the uh, Coastal Command and the monitoring of the, the submarines, they'd evidently had good social time. So he was a little bit um, surprised when he arrived at Benson to find it was very official. <laughs> and perhaps the socialising wasn't going to be quite on the cards. But um, again, there was a bit of unserviceability issues with some of their aeroplanes. He had to try and uh, you know, learn in a completely new area. He's now in the middle of Oxfordshire, mm-hmm. effectively, which has a large number of bomber bases and training bases. So it's a very busy, busy sky. And he had to try and learn fly Spitfire. And then he's had to start doing practice photographic runs. He was going down to Cornwall and he was going out to Wales to try and do test photographs of things. And uh, he brought it back and they gave him like six or seven trips mm-hmm. to get sorted. And they went, great, you're operational now, off you go. Um, so he did, and uh, he did well, actually. He had very few uh, unsuccessful trips. They would always be given a primary and an alternate. Mm-hmm. And uh, if he couldn't get the primary, they would get an alternate. Or if he saw something of interest, then he uh, he would take it. And he was primarily being given areas in sort of northern Germany, the sort of coastal okay. ports around Wilhelmshaven and... Um, and Stettin mm-hmm. uh, up the top there. And he did well, and uh, he made a good good group of friends around him. And uh, from his diaries, you can link to the various pubs and establishments <laughs> and cinemas and films that he saw. And, it, and it's very strange because he said, oh, I saw this film tonight, it was that. And I thought, oh, I wonder if it's there. And <laughs> you go on a well-known internet uh, movie channel sort of thing, <laughs> and uh, there's the film. And you sit down, you watch it, and you go, wow, you know, this is quite fantastic. But uh, but I digress. He was offered the opportunity for a transfer, and that transfer was up to Scotland uh, for a task that at the time hadn't been told to them as to what it was. Um, but little did they know that that task had actually come from Churchill. The scene is is effectively uh, early 1942, so right at the start of January. Uh, the weather had been appalling. Tirpitz, which of course was the largest... German battleship of the fleet, and the only real one surviving after Bismarck had been sunk um, the the year before, uh, had been being fitted out uh, in Denmark. And uh, they sent over a PRU Spitfire in the first week of January, and it wasn't in port. 
And they went, okay. And they're going through the Enigma messages going, well, it's definitely moved. Yeah. Is it in the Kiel Canal? It's, well, it's not there either. Where's it gone? Uh, at the end of the first week of January, they had a report from the resistance in Norway that a very large ship had uh, turned up in a hidden fjord just outside Trondheim. And uh, the Admiralty put two and two together and went, is this possibly our turpits? Churchill said, well, we need to go and find it. We need to go and uh, assure ourselves that this is where it is because, you know, we've got half of the Royal Navy protecting the Atlantic convoys coming from America. And we've now got half the Royal Navy out in the North Sea for mm -hmm. the Arctic convoys going backwards and forwards to Russia because Russia was sending us stuff and we were sending them stuff. So our Royal Navy is split. It can't fight. You know, we've got, we've got things going down in Africa. We're having to send stuff to. So we're getting a bit thin on the ground with our Navy, which really was the pride of the, of the, the, the British arsenal at the time, really. <laughs> um, and it's split and ineffective. And putting the Tirpitz out to uh, amongst the Arctic convoys would have decimated it. Absolutely decimated it. We had nothing that could match it, really. No, right? nothing at all. Nothing at all. So it became a priority. So Churchill said, dispatch a flight of photo reconnaissance to Wick. And the flight that was allocated was Sea Flight, which was not Alistair's flight. And they asked for volunteers to go as well. And Alistair went, well, I'll go. Uh, and a couple of other chaps volunteered too. Um, but the weather was pretty poor. So it did take them a few days to get up to Scotland. Uh, one of those guys who volunteered uh, crashed on the way up there. The weather was so poor and he passed away a couple of days later in, in hospital. So, oh, no. you know, somebody died just transferring up. Mm. The weather was that bad. But uh, effectively, sea flight reformed at uh, Wick uh, in about the middle of January. And Alistair joined them after a few days. And it was a real bunch of different characters, <laughs> shall we say. They had... Uh, uh, a guy known as AFP Fane, which was a household name at the time because he was a famous pre-war racing driver right. who had raced at Brooklands yep. and Le Mans and he won the Mille Mille in 1938 and he was a shareholder of Fraser Nash Cars and he really was a, um, a very well-known individual. He was flying with the Photo Reconnaissance Unit. Uh, and then we had a young chap called Mervyn Jones who had uh, been part of a horse racing family and uh, he had actually won the 1940 Grand National wow. on his first ride and uh, in front of the king. Uh, so he was effectively a household name. He was an outsider, 25 to 1. And um, yeah, so these these five guys basically were up with five aeroplanes in Scotland trying to find turpits. And on the 23rd of January, Fane, flying a Spitfire, um, saw this ship. Uh, in a fjord, took a photo, brought it back, and the Admiralty confirmed that it was Tirpitz. They had a positive identification, which, whilst that then settled some nerves, it raised some others because yeah. you now know that the biggest battleship <laughs> is hidden quite nicely on the western coast of uh, Norway. Yeah. Um, but unbeknown to us, it had been a massive mistake for the Germans because it was so remote, it was really difficult to resupply it. We wouldn't know until after the war that effectively it's probably the biggest mistake they could they could make because it became relatively ineffective. It would take weeks to resupply. Every time that ship would go out, it would take weeks to resupply wow. because it was so remote. Yeah. There was some relief within within the Admiralty that the ship had been found and they knew they had to mount a task 
uh, to destroy the ship. So Churchill said, right, I want eyes on this ship twice a day. We watch where this is. And any sign of it moving, if it's starting to set off, we need to know about it. And these five guys then embarked on that. So every possible day that they could mount a trip to Norway, they would go and take photographs of it and the supply uh. routes and everything else. And uh, at the time, because the ship had moved there, the Germans were fairly unprepared for it being in that area. It had anti-aircraft guns on it. Yeah, There was no Luftwaffe cover. Because right, whilst okay. the weather was appalling for us getting there, it was also quite bad for the Germans yeah. getting there as well. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> dare I say it, for the large part of sort of January and February 1942, there was no Luftwaffe defence over the top of Tirpitz. Um Which meant that whilst they protected themselves from the ground fire, uh, they were largely unchallenged. And the downside with the cameras they were using at the time is that whilst they were highly effective at altitudes around about 15,000 feet, these guys are going over at about 30, 35,000 feet, right. which often meant they would have to then descend yeah. over the target to take their photos and then come back again. Not quite as low as Fane famously got. Not, no, no. <laughs> Fane has an amazing photograph taken at about... Uh, <coughs> probably about 150 feet um, as he's paralleling the side of a hill uh, and took a photo. They had an oblique camera that pointed out of one side of the fuselage, yeah. effectively parallel with the wings. Right. Um, and uh, he took a very low-level photograph. A very famous photograph. A very famous bits. photograph, yes. And uh, But no, so most of them were taking them from, from high altitude. Um, and Sandy did a couple of runs up there, and those photos survived. So it's... It, it's possible to get these photos um, and see what he saw and see what was taken out the bottom or the side of the aeroplane. That's and, very cool. And it is. And when yeah. you match it in with his diary, because yeah. of course we've got, we've got fantastic you know, primary sources from his diary of what was happening, from the operational records of the unit and what was happening. And the, the, the photo reconnaissance unit also had like a relatively unofficial journal as well, uh, where okay. a lot of other things get recorded in quite a... Uh, non-military way shall we say <laughs> of things that were happening so you can pick together this amazing picture of um you know the squadron car miraculously being found in a ditch near the pub down the road but nobody knows anything about it and you know funny that yeah and uh, various airplanes being short of spares and then somebody diverts in spends the night there and their airplane won't start the next morning and yet suddenly all of the spares inventory that they needed have miraculously turned up as yeah. they robbed bits from visiting airplanes it's it's quite bizarre but regardless so um Sandy flew several missions up there, and the weather was pretty poor, but on the morning of the 5th of March, 1942, it was uh, not bad weather, shall we say. Uh, not ideal, but not bad. Yeah. Uh, and he jumped in uh, a little Spitfire uh, to go off to Norway once more. He didn't come home from that trip. And you can see that the his logbook is uh, written out by uh, his flight commander, uh, saying effectively that he had taken off at uh, 10 minutes past five in the morning, uh, on the uh, 5th of March uh, to go to Trondheim and hadn't returned. And that's where his logbook ends. Uh, and his diary ends the day before, saying, right. been to the cinema, hoping for a trip tomorrow. And that's when it's last filled in. <laughs> so he didn't come back from that. And the reason he didn't come back was because he arrived over the top of Trondheim and would have been surprised to know that just a couple of days before, the Germans had moved a squadron of Messerschmitt 109s up to one of the air bases uh, in Trondheim. And that's really where the story ended for many years. There was one account, there was a combat 
account of an intercept of a Spitfire by uh, two Germans, uh, one of them Dieter Gerhard, and the other one Heinz Knotke. And Heinz had actually written a book in the 1950s called I Flew for the Fuhrer. And in that book, he gives an account of his first attempted kill, which was of a photo of a constant Spitfire uh, in early March over Trondheim in 1942 um, and it gives a report that uh, the Germans had installed a listening station in Christiansund which is probably about 100 kilometres sort of south southwest of Trondheim which picked up the noise of a solitary aeroplane coming in from over the North Sea which could only be coming from the UK yep. wouldn't, wouldn't have been German uh, and as a result they scrambled these two 109s who then had the time advantage to be able to climb to quite a considerable altitude yeah. and sit and wait and uh, and that's what happened. So there's a report from Heinz saying he saw this Spitfire circling, which is very important, over Tromsfjord. And he thought that the, the Englishman was empty preoccupied. Um, but then he saw the Spitfire straighten up and start to head back towards the UK. So he dived upon it and opened fire and he hit the, the little Spitfire uh, in his first attack and saw it start to trail smoke uh, and he pulled out wide and went back in again to try and finish the aeroplane off and closed into such a, a, a close location that his windscreen got covered in oil wow. out of the aeroplane which meant he couldn't see forward couldn't see to shoot so he had to break off to one side and Dieter came in um, and his machine gun rounds found the uh, fuel tank on the starboard wing which then set the aeroplane on fire uh, and they watched it descend more and more and more and then they saw the pilot jumped from the aeroplane uh, and his parachute opened and they see the report of it uh, crashing into the hillside and they return back home. Now, as it was, that particular Messerschmitt unit uh, was recalled back to Germany the next day. So they left. And uh, that's really where that story went. Now, subsequently, <laughs> from research over the years, um, there were various letters that have passed backwards and forwards to the family. Um, and the account given by Sandy was that uh, he had got to Trondheim um, but encountered some engine issues. And actually, two or three missions before, he had had engine issues in the middle of the North Sea, which is not the best place to get engine issues no. in a single-engine aeroplane. Yeah. can think of better. <laughs> Definitely. Now, he uh, would evidently have been presented with a choice because you're now over Trondheim. You've got an engine problem. You can either fly east to Sweden, which is neutral, but that meant that you're probably not going to get home for a couple of months. And equally, the photos that you've taken and that information is also not likely to get back for yeah. quite some time. Or does he return back to the UK? Because he's got the information and he can get back with the report. But if his engine's going to let go, that, that's going to be the end of him. It's March. Yeah. North Sea. You're not going to live for particularly long. No. And whilst they had a survival pack uh, and, a, and a little dinghy, you're not going to spend much time you know, with the exposure out there. So he evidently had a bit of a dilemma. And in doing this, he would have been circling because to take <coughs> photos, you flew in a straight line. Yeah. So we can only assume that with his return to, uh, in the direction of the UK, he had taken his photos on that trip um, and was circling as Heinz had described whilst he was trying to work out what was happening, and which meant he was preoccupied and would not have been looking behind him because they hadn't encountered any Germans before. Yeah. And it was typical that Sandy became the first Spitfire to be lost over Norway. And, uh, but he did manage to bail out. 
and he landed on the hillside and he was captured. However, the locals had also seen and <coughs> the schools were on strike at the time. So most of the school children were at home <laughs> and a number of these school children saw the parachute descend and went, oh, Go and see what's going Just on. Run out to the yeah, parachute. Yeah. Effectively, yeah. <laughs> so um, the kids setting off with all their energy bounded up the hill. Three of them came across Sandy Gun, uh, and he had lost a fine boot on the way down, and he had he'd, um, suffered flash burns from the from the burning airplane. So he'd burnt the side of his face and he'd burnt his hands, uh, and he had an escape kit and a medical kit with him. These kids helped him dress his burns, um, and one of them lent him his ski boot. And uh, they, they told him that if they'd seen it, Germans would have seen it, they would be assembling. So they said, look, you know, it's going to be best to come with us down into the town and hand yourself over. And the, uh, the reports we've got uh, is that he walked down off the, uh, off the track. Um, and there's a point where there's a road that goes over the top of the mountain and it meets the track. And the Germans were waiting for him there. And the, the young lads, who are all aged between sort of like 11 and 18, handed him over to the Germans. And the Germans then took him down into the little village and took him to the commandant's house. And um, yeah, he was kept overnight in the town and then the next day transported up to Trondheim um, by lorry, where he would have then been uh, taken by train down to Oslo. And then he would have been put in an aeroplane again, flown over neutral Sweden uh, and down to Frankfurt. Uh, to Dulag Luft, which I guess has come up on your yep. your, your <laughs> radar before. It certainly has. <laughs> certainly has. But so you would probably know that obviously in Dulag Luft, um, you normally have spent a very short period of time whilst they processed you and worked out for there. But Sandy was there for a month. Wow. In Dulag Luft, and the reason being is that the Germans had managed to capture a photo reconnaissance Spitfire in the retreat from France when it was part of the, the photo development unit. And that was obviously a very primitive Spitfire. So they knew from the information that they'd gathered from that, that there's very short range on yeah. that particular aeroplane. But they'd obviously been up to the wreck and they'd seen that it was a Spitfire. When they put two and two together, they went, well, this is a Spitfire in this part of Norway. <laughs> How's it got here? How's it got here? So they suddenly thought, is there a British base somewhere uh, in Norway. Yeah. So they interrogated him for a month and he didn't give out. And my understanding is from reports that uh, uh, another officer brought in who was being treated for uh, injuries and things under morphine gave away that actually there were some very specific long range Spitfires right. that were doing the photo reconnaissance. And as a result, Sandy was then moved on. He was sent off to a brand new prison camp and that brand new prison camp was uh, Stalagluf Three, where he was the fifth prisoner to arrive. The fifth. The fifth oh. prisoner. He's prisoner <laughs> number five. So uh, it does get a little bit more vague. But what we know is that he was an incredibly popular guy there. Um, being being Scottish and not wanting to put any sort of uh, stereotypes on things, Dave, but um, <laughs> he was the go-to point for porridge when porridge oats arrived from the Red Cross <laughs> for the guy to make up Quite right. your oats. <laughs> um, but he also, I believe, uh, I found one report from uh, somebody who was uh, 
in the camp with him that uh, coffee percolators were his thing that he could make. So when they were getting coffee sent over, he would uh, make up a percolator to actually brew up proper coffee for when oh. they had it. So popular guy. Uh, and he made a number of friends in there. And uh, we know from the people he was uh, in the hut with that he was in hut 122 okay. uh, in the north compound. And uh, there was a number of well-known names, such as Wally Valenta mm-hmm. and Des Plunkett. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hubert Henderson became his uh, his very best friend there. Really interesting group of guys. And what appears to be happening, and of course, the the big escape that we know of from Stalagluf III, of course, being the great escape, mm-hmm. you know, really kicked off in 1943. So there is a bit of a gap. But what we do know is that um, uh, Sandy ended up uh, as a tunneler, and he worked on Tunnel Tom, which went out from 122, um, and it was Tom that was discovered late in 1943 by the Germans. Uh, and that brought a halt to all of the tunneling that was going on. Yeah. Uh, and the Germans, of course, had thought, well, you know, they've put all this effort into building a tunnel. We found the tunnel. They can't be doing anything else. And as we all know from the <laughs> film and the books and everything that people write, there were three tunnels, of course. And uh, I believe it was around about Christmas time mm-hmm. that um, Roger Bushall decided to open up tunneling again. Uh, and he put all of the tunneling teams on Harry with all of the backfill going into Dick, which I think was then used for tool storage and, yeah. and, and dispersing of dirt and things. Yeah. Um, and Alice became one of the the digging men on that, uh, alongside Hubert. And by the middle of March 1944, uh, the tunnel was, as they thought, complete. And uh, it came to decide who was going. Uh, and, of course, uh, the breakdown, they, they wanted to pick those that had the most chance of escape. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, whilst you've got 600-odd guys who have all been involved on this escape attempt, uh, you can't take all of them. I mean, no. Roger wanted to obviously take a large number of them. Um, but they picked all of those fluent German speakers and fluent French speakers and those that stood the greatest chance to go first. Um, and then of the next 100, there was a number of people that they picked at the start uh, who were fluent foreign language speaking, of which Alistair right. was not. They went, his name went into the draw for the next 100 places. And obviously, being a um, you know a tunneler, one of these guys who had put quite a lot of effort into the into the escape attempt, uh, that rightfully earned him a place in that draw, and he was then allocated an escape number. Escape numbers in the Great Escape vary a lot when you look at all of the different information because a lot of people swap places at the time. Things move around for yeah. various reasons within the huts of people getting there now. The most references I've seen to Sandy Gunn was that he was number 68. Okay. And I believe Hubert was down as 80, his his mate. Uh, And they were the places allocated. What we know for sure was that he was in Hut 104 that night. And we also know he was part of one of the tunnel collapses. So there are various accounts. Yes, so there's various accounts of Sandy being caught out in a tunnel collapse in the tunnel, which is depicted in the film. And there are references to people taking suitcases that were far too big down Mm -hmm. the tunnel, which then resulted in that. And, of course, that was one of the delays uh, that prevented them getting out. Now, what I don't know is the cause of Sandy's tunnel collapse. Was he taking a case that was too big? Yeah. I don't know. All we know is that the tunnel 
collapsed on him partially. He then had to be dug out to then continue his route down right. the tunnel. But he was one of the 76 that managed to get out before the tunnel was discovered. Hubert was not. Hubert was still in the tunnel uh, and returned back to Hut 104. And Hubert's account after the war is what we know so much about Sandy's time in the camp because he uh, ended up reporting back to the family uh, as exactly what happened. So um, he, he must have been quite near the mouth of the tunnel, though, because it was 76 that got out, so it was 77 who was the first captured, effectively. Effectively, yes. Yeah. So, so he, he must have been quite near the mouth. Indeed. And, you know, it's very difficult to work out um, how many would have been in the tunnel at any particular time because, mm. again, you know, they were taking turns at the various stations pulling people through. So mm -hmm. I don't know if Sandy had been in the tunnel for 20 minutes or three hours. Right. Because, you know, they were relieving people as they went through. Is it right? Now it's your turn to pull this through and things like that. And that's why the order muddles up quite a lot. Yeah. So it could be quite reasonable that they could have been at either end of the tunnel. Hubert could have been the next one out. Hubert, sadly, is no longer with us. Right. Um, but I'll come on to Hubert's story later because there's been a lot of turns with this thing. <laughs> but uh, effectively, Sandy did get out um, and he was traveling with his escape partner, Mike Casey. Um, and neither of these gentlemen spoke uh, any foreign language, as I said. Um, so they elected to try and travel as covertly as possible. And I can only presume because of his knowledge of the northern shipping towns uh, and where they were eventually captured was Sandy's decision because they were heading for Sassanich to, to jump a boat to Sweden. And, you know, most of his photo reconnaissance trips were over that area. So I can only presume that from memory, he had a reasonable understanding of the geography there. He also knew his way around a port, you know, he mm, worked yeah. in the in the shipyards. So, yes, yeah, so he set off, um, but they didn't want to risk travelling in a train because their lack of uh, language ability if they were challenged. So the reports that I have is that they actually travelled underneath the trains right. <laughs> by effectively sitting on the bogies of the uh, of the freight carts. And it actually looks like he probably had to travel quite a long way into Germany before he could then actually pick up the routes out to Sassanich. Really? Yeah, there's no real direct route from Poland where the prisoner camp was because he was on the run for two days. So uh, he was captured... Uh, very late on the 25th up at Sassanich. And whilst we don't have the exact first-hand account of how he was captured, we think, looking at the area, um, that they were crossing potentially from the freight yards to the passenger yards to then get under a passenger train to then head up to the ports and were possibly challenged as they're crossing the, the, the goods yard. Right. But that's that's just presumption at the moment. This is obviously an ongoing research yeah. project. Mm. So, um, you know, I'll keep on striving on this part because it's, it's, it's fascinating. But as a result, so they ended up um, uh, being handed over to the Gestapo uh, because we know the, the, the escape had... Uh, Gone riled. right to the top. It had gone right to the top, and it had riled the Germans somewhat. Um, so well, they were being Hitler had ordered anyone captured to be shot. Yes, that's uh, right. Goering ultimately had to negotiate him down to fifty. That's right. So, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the humanitarian that he was. Yeah. <laughs> they arrived with and, and were then in prison with a number of other um, prisoners from the same escape, and they did all relate their stories to each other, which is where we know the story of uh, how Sandy travelled and where he was captured. Right, okay. 
and uh, you know slowly over the next few days people were called up and uh, most people were presuming they're being taken back to camps and Sandy was called up on the 6th of April uh, to go and he left the room and the chaps that he left behind I think there were two or three that were left in Gorlitz who then several days later were then taken back to Stalagluf 3 and uh, of course they arrived there and they said brilliant where's everyone else and they went no you're the, the, the first one's back and they're saying well we mean the, the first one's back you know loads of people have been leaving for the last few days and the presumption was then still that they were um, transported to other camps. No one was really completely sure as to what happened. And of course, the film it's portrayed almost as instantaneously <laughs> they're called in and told what's happened. But um, I, th- I, th- I think that point is clearer in Brick Hill's book, though, is that it was it was a contracted period of time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, contracted is probably the wrong word. Extended period yeah. of time. Yeah. Afterwards, uh, as opposed to the film where you're right, it, it seems very condensed. Indeed. The, yes. The book does drag it out a bit. So, um, yeah, so names were posted and uh, I believe, again, off the top of my head, I think it was 44 names that mm-hmm. were posted initially, of which Sandy's was on it. Um, and it became evident that when he was called up on the 6th, he was he was taken away and executed. Uh, by which time, as you were talking about him being 21 when he turned up and 22 when he was captured, he was 24 years old wow. when he was executed. And uh, slowly over the coming days, the number went up. And I think it stayed at 49 mm. for a long time. And then they finally posted uh, later on a 50th name. Um, but then the ashes were returned and the, the prisoners were allowed to build a memorial, obviously there. Um, and the ashes were interned in that uh, memorial. And then after the war, they were moved uh, to Poznan and placed in the Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery there. And that really is kind of where I picked the story up. The story of a young man who had been executed in the Great Escape after flying a photo reconnaissance mission to Norway. And that was his, really, his epitaph, is a few lines. And yeah. I thought, it's a great shame that there's no more on that. So I yeah. need to expand on that and, and find out more about this guy. So how did you first come across this story? So <laughs> it's, it's a kind of a, it's, it was a, uh, I don't want to say it was by accident. I went looking for a story. Right. So... I have been fortunate enough over the years to do a number of projects, both prisoner of war related and in military history. And uh, as a living, I do a number of restorations and maintenance on aeroplanes of this nature, Mm -hmm. of this period. Uh, And I try and find parts and projects for people. Um, But I'm also fortunate, if you look at it in one word, to do a number of documentary projects mm-hmm. for various channels and things and one of the things I was looking at was uh, in 2017 was a project to mark 100 years of the Royal Air Force and one of the things that I'd come across so often with um, the veterans is that everyone has a story yeah. and you know <clears throat> you have one granddad story and another granddad story and you often get cases of one granddad say, well it didn't happen like that it happened like this <laughs> and then someone else went no 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 it happened like this and so you suddenly have a not conflicting because everyone had a different experience. But trying to sum up one particular role was really difficult. Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be fantastic for REF 100 to find a item that actually represented so many different stories? So rather than finding a story that could be expanded out to represent a large group of people, yeah. let's find one item that represents lots of stories i thought it's got to be an airplane 
<laughs> yeah. It's got to be an airplane because it's RAF 100. Yeah. And it's got to be something that people are going to relate to. And generally, if you go out into the street and you ask people what a typhoon is, they're probably not going to know. If you go to someone and say, what's a Spitfire? They're generally more likely to know because yeah. it is an iconic <laughs> machine. It's yep. known the world round. And I thought, well, okay, so it's, it's got to be a Spitfire. So let's find <laughs> a Spitfire uh, and see if there's one with a story attached. And I thought, okay, well, we are 2017. There were not a lot of Spitfires just sitting around uh, <laughs> looking to be found. Within the UK, there wasn't likely to be very much. Yep. Um, but I thought Scandinavia is probably going to be the best bet because mm. France, a lot's been recovered in France. Awful lot's been recovered in Holland. Um, Germany, not a huge amount of Spitfire operations over Germany. Let's be, let's be, face yep. it. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's look up there. So um, luckily, those records had largely been released, and uh, a bit of research down at Q showed that there were actually only a very small number of Spitfires that had uh, been lost in Norway. So I thought, well, okay, let's have a look at the ones that are feasible. So you're taking out all the ones in which the person's been killed, because that's quite rightfully a war grave, and you're not going to go disturbing disturbing that yeah so that knocked out a couple of them uh and then we thought well let's go and look at the ones that are in lakes because there's an awful lot of very deep lakes and that's quite cost prohibitive to go and get it and that knocked out a few more and then let's try and find the ones that have been recovered and there's a couple that have been recovered in norway which actually only then dropped it down to about three spitfires uh so i thought let's have a little look at those and they were all photoreconnaissance Spitfires. So I thought, well, that's fantastic because I've grown up near Benson. So I yeah. had quite an interest in photoreconnaissance. <clears throat> and it's also a, a story that's not widely told, you know. And uh, I thought, well, this, this could be of interest. People, you know, Spitfires, everyone knows them as fighters, but it was used as photoreconnaissance. I thought, oh, there's a start to this. Mm -hmm. And of course, I found this one, Sandy Gunn. <clears throat> And uh, I thought, okay, let's have a little look at this. And of course, he came up in The Great Escape. And I thought, I wonder if his Spitfire is still there. And the wonders of the internet is, is that most Spitfires that have been recovered are known about. And it doesn't take very long with a Google to put in the registration of an aeroplane, the military serial number, and see if anyone's got any information on it. And there was really very little. There was one report of a microlite um, uh, club who, back in 2015, had... Uh, recovered some parts and back to their clubhouse uh, from the Spitfire. And I thought, well, if there were some parts in 2015, where's the rest of it? Yeah. Mm. you know. And it wasn't known that people had recovered it. I couldn't find it in a museum. I couldn't find any reports of people going and seeing it. I thought, it's, I wonder if it's there. And that's what started off. And I tried to trace the Microlite Club, but that had, that had gone. <laughs> um, and what I had noticed was that there was a, a, a shooting range not far from where the microlight club had been based and it's all in exactly the same region near the town and i thought well the two things that don't go together are airplanes and shooting ranges so the shooting range still appears to be in business yeah. they must know or have had a contact of somebody who was in that microlight range so yeah. I, I fired off a, a a message and uh i didn't hear anything back for a couple of days and then i had a lovely email from a lady uh, who worked in the local municipality office saying, oh, my husband used to fly there, and uh, we've known the story of the Spitfire wreck on the hill, and, uh, you know, it's whilst it's not widely travelled to, uh, you know, people have known where it is over the years, and occasionally kids have gone up there to, to have a look at the wreck, but, yeah, we, you know, we, we know about this, and it's up on the hill. I couldn't tell you exactly where, but it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's up there. Um, 
why do you want to know? And I was like, uh, well, I find this story fascinating, basically. <laughs> and, uh, of course, out there at that particular time of year, the snow is king, really. Yeah. And they are largely covered in snow most of the year round. So there was a long and agonizing wait, uh, effectively until June, of just trying to build up information and build this story. It must have been agony. It <laughs> was quite <laughs> agony because there was a couple of teaser photos I got sent through, which I think had been taken about 12 or 13 years before, uh, of Lily's then uh, young children at the wreck site when they had hiked up one summer. And there's lots of bits of blue painted wreckage, and I'm sitting there trying to zoom this photo in to see <laughs> to see what's in. I see, I see a bit of wing, I see a bit of you know, I think, oh my god, you and know. The PRU planes, they were painted in a distinctive blue. Is yeah, they correct? were. So there was a photoreconstant blue to try and make them blend in, mm. and you know it was so well preserved because this particular. Uh, location of the site was effectively in the lee of the hill so it never saw sunlight so mm. that aeroplane had last seen direct sunlight um when it was shot down mm. so wow. the blue was still so vivid but then of course i think well this is it's like 15 years ago you mm. know so who's who's gonna have yeah uh, you know see this so i had to wait and wait and then um lily and her husband had a had an attempt to get up there uh, I think in the May and went no no we can get close-ish but it's it's still really snowy and I've got sent a photo of like um, you know a snow-covered landscape in front of the car saying it's up there a bit more but we're going to have to wait <laughs> and then suddenly uh, at the end of May early June that's right early June they said they sent me a photo saying we've made it up to the site and here's some photos of the wreck and it was largely unchanged and they said you know but there's not much there sort of thing and I was like well look I'm going to come out because it's it's not that difficult to get to that part of the world. I literally, I think, three days later, jumped on a flight uh, out to uh, Christiansund, and Lily and Frodo picked me up from the from the airport, um, and uh, we had dinner. And I think they thought I was totally and utterly mad as to why this English guy had come all the way to this tiny little village in in Norway um, to talk to them. And uh, I, the next day, I went up in front of the council. And there was a couple of reporters there uh, and a photographer from the local paper to see this mad English guy who turned up to talk about Spitfires. And I gave a, a brief presentation uh, to everyone there to say, look, this is quite a special story. And mm. they knew some of the story, yeah, um, but not all of it. And they said, well, we better go and have a look. So we set off up the mountain. You effectively drive past the wreck site, slowly climbing all the way. Um, to get to a car park near a reservoir and at that point you effectively double back on yourself but only by foot because right. you cannot get wheeled vehicles uh, any further up the hill um, and set off and high on an escarpment we found the engine block and uh, that had various serial numbers on it which related back to the information that I had picked up as to the engine that was fitted to the aeroplane uh, and I thought, well, this is this is fantastic. They were like, oh, we can stop here and have lunch. And I was like, where's the wreck? And there we were. It was about another 20 minutes. I was like, we're not stopping for lunch. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go and find this thing. Um, and got there. And there was instantly recognizable things because I work with Spitfires weekly. Yeah. You know, it's part of my, my job. So there was starting to identify, well, that's a bit of that and that's a bit of that. And that's fantastic. And, and what was weird was there was this one pile of, of wreck and it was a mound. Effectively, and normally when an aeroplane crashes in the ground, it makes a bit of a hole, yeah. not a mound. And there was this big pile of stuff, and I'm looking at it, I'm going, well, this is this is all very strange, because we've got bits of the front of the aeroplane on the top of the mound. And you go, oh, there's something not quite right there. And you're standing on this mound going, it's a very spongy, creaky, cracking kind of mound. And you clear a bit of more moss off the top, and you go, there's a bit of aeroplane underneath. And you 
sort of clear that and take that bit, and there's a bit more aeroplane underneath that. I suddenly realised that there's this big pile of Spitfire. And as we went down further through the mound, we're finding stuff further and further back in the aeroplane. I thought, hang on, of course this makes sense. The Germans we know went to the wreck and they would have been looking for information. So there must be a hole with a Spitfire in it that they'd found and they've then gone and pulled all of the stuff out of the wreck and piled it up, which of course right. meant everything that was at the bottom of the hole was now on top of the mound. Ah, so we found yeah. the mound of Spitfire. Where's the hole? <laughs> so then we started looking for the hole and there was like a little bit of a bog with a stream running through it and then there's some trees on the other side and, and found a bit of an indentation and thought, ah, oh, maybe that's where it is. And we'd taken a little metal detector with us, ran it over the top of the hole, nothing. And then walking back, well, we'll trace our steps from this hole back to where the, the mound is. And we started getting little pings from the bog, going, ah, oh, there's stuff in the bog. Maybe they've traipsed it backwards and forwards in here, but effectively we've got this big pile of Spitfire. So I thought, wow, what a recovery that's going to be. Yeah. So I came back to the UK and I spoke to a production company that I was working with at the time. And I said, look, I've got an amazing story for you. Found a Spitfire. It's in Norway. It's got this story with it. Um, let's go and record the recovery. And they went, yep, that's fantastic. Brilliant. We'll do that. Uh, I drove out with a, with a van. Uh, the, long thought, round. the long way around. The long way around. Because I thought, I'm not going to trust this to putting this in a box and shipping it back. So if I'm going to bring this back, I'm going to stick it in a van. And if I get held up, you know, and I've got to say, I've got to say thanks to Swedish Embassy, Norwegian Embassy. They were all fantastic in helping with all the customs things to, to get this aeroplane through. We mobilized and we got out there and we got to the pile and we stripped the pile clean in about 40 minutes. <laughs> and we thought, oh, well, this hasn't quite gone to plan. I've, I've got all these people out here for a week. And <laughs> there's not an awful lot of this. Yeah. And we thought, there's something not quite right here. You know, if it's never been recovered and we've got some bits in the town and we've got everything that's here, well, where's the rest of it? Yeah. And then we thought, oh, there was pings coming out of the bog. So we get uh. the proper big metal detectors out and it goes nuts <laughs> in the bog. And we go, right. We found the aeroplane. <laughs> so long story short, several days later, everyone's very muddy, very wet. Um, <laughs> but we excavated this Spitfire uh, out of the bog. And it was incredibly well preserved because when it had crashed, um, the engine from the propeller blades that we found, the engine wasn't turning. So it would have been slowing down as it, it came down. It had lost the tail. We never found the tail. Uh, which meant it would have been flipping over and over and over, yeah. slowing down all the way. It then went through the best part of 10 metres of snow, which was over the top of a peat bog. Right. And, of course, it then went through the snow into the peat bog. Yeah. No oxygen in the peat bog, beautifully preserved. Nice. Um, but we basically we recovered 70% of Sandy's Spitfire, um, which was everything that was left. Yeah. Uh, and there were some people locally who had some parts that came in and, and, and bought, bought these in. And uh, we laid it all out in the town uh, to show everyone because, of course, everyone knew the story of the Spitfire on the hill, but very few had visited. Yeah. Um, and we thought, well, if we're going to take the Spitfire away, let's show it to the town yeah. before it goes. So we did an outline on the floor and we laid out all the parts that we could in a, in a morning assemble. And the whole community turned up and we told them all about it and all about the story. And they had a good look around and they left and we loaded it in the van and I spent three days driving home. I then took it back to RAF Benson uh, to effectively have it end its mission 76 years oh, after nice. it had crashed. <laughs> yeah. And then we thought, what do we do with it? And we had set out to tell the world about Sandy's story. Yep. 
and I thought, uh, yeah, let's let's do this. And I spoke to uh, some journalists about it, and I did a load more research. And it was probably early August, and one of the journalists said to me, he "said that this is an incredible story. The world is going to love this." And I says, "Well, let's tell the world then." And put together a really nice piece. We launched it to the world a year ago on the 9th of November, just before Remembrance Sunday. Mm. And the world loved it. To date, well, I say to date, the last time I reviewed it was about a month ago. Uh, we've told 39 million people Sandy's story. That's incredible. And uh, it's been incredibly well received. And off the back of that, we've had information that's come out from people, not only people saying, I've got information on this, can we help? But other people saying, look, you know, my relative was in the photo. Do you have information on them? So suddenly we've become a bit of a focal point for this particular unit with families either writing in, giving information yeah. or asking for stuff back. And that's been a spin-off that I really didn't expect. Um, and I've, you know, I've had, a, there's a great team that have come on board. There's about, I think 11 of us in total now that, that, that work across this, uh, this project. And uh, from social media to uh, research, um, it's all there. Of course, this year we lost the last two um, survivors from The Great Escape. Yeah. And I did write to both of them. Um, and uh, I was politely turned down by both. And for totally understandable reasons. You know, it was a horrible time for them. Uh, and they were very elderly. And they just didn't want to go back to that time. And uh, when Dick Churchill passed away, Dick had been in the same room as Sandy. Uh, and almost essentially, you know, he was he was just entering the tunnel, I think, when it was discovered. So he would have been only a few people behind. And somebody who knew exactly what happened in that hut, potentially with Sandy and Hubert at that time, that when I'm researching it was still alive. Yeah who could have told me all of that information I would, I would know had passed, I suddenly realized that that information is now gone forever. Yeah. There will be no other reports mm. there. And time had been a, <laughs> the biggest problem with this because actually the whole, if I'd done this five years ago, there would have been people around who knew him. Yeah. And if I'd done this seven years ago, there were people who were around who flew with him in the photo reconnaissance unit at Benson. And that's what's incredibly sad because this story is fantastic, I think. And uh, it's been amazing to research and there's a lot more research I want to do, but almost by the day it gets more difficult. And I now have to rely on the hope that families of relatives of people that he flew with have kept letters or diaries just like he did, yeah. talking of things that they got up to. Uh, and I do have a list of people who <laughs> I've managed to contact who are willing to talk, but they're spread all over the UK. And in fact, in a lot of cases, they're spread over the world. You know, I found relatives of these these guys in South Africa and down in Australia and Canada um, that have all been, and the families have been fantastic. They've all been incredibly supportive. And they've sent a lot of information through and I've traveled up and down the UK to interview people uh, and it has been absolutely brilliant, but it is going to get more difficult. Yep. And what I actually find is the more people we tell about the story, the more that might be forthcoming. And even, even today I had an email from a lady in Wales who's researching our jockey. 
uh, and uh, she's she's found our story and she's writing to ask of what information we have and I hopefully we can trade information there might be stuff that she's found that I haven't um, because they'll look at it in a different way so fingers crossed more will be forthcoming um, because it's never going to stop and and for me that's that's the that's the strange thing at what point do I stop <laughs> because you know people have said to me they've said um, well he's you know Sandy's obviously buried in Poznan you know where he is yeah have you been to visit I know I will visit yeah but I don't think that time is now right because I wonder that if I go and visit is is that the end because yeah. I don't want it to be the end. I, you know, I know a huge amount about this guy and there's still a lot more to learn. And I kind of feel that whilst I want to go and I need to go, I'm not sure going now is a good thing. Yeah, that, that, that almost feels like the closing chapter of, of the story. Yeah. And you, yeah. you, know, you, you obviously don't want to reach that point yet. No, it doesn't. No, For me, I think going to visit Sandy out in Poland is probably the point where I go, yep, that's where my research of the story ends. Yeah, But I think that is several years away. So I'm not... I'm not not going out of disrespect. <laughs> yeah, mm. I'm going out of. I'm I'm not going out of respect for the story yeah. because I think it would be more difficult for me. Whilst he's on paper, as somebody who was alive and has done these things, and whilst I've been to the house where he was kept overnight, and I've got his aeroplane in the workshop, <laughs> and I've been to his school. Yeah. Uh, and I will go to his other place. I'll go to the house where he was born. Uh, I've been in all of these places and the pubs, obviously, that yeah. he frequented <laughs> and the airbase where he was at. I've been to all of these places. Um, but I think when I'm actually confronted by where he is, yeah. that's different for me. Mm. And I need to work out how I deal with that, shall we say. Yeah. So that's where Sandy's story's got to. You say that. Tell us where the plane is, right. what, what you're doing with it, and its its future, shall we say. So there's a number of things, as, as we've touched on uh, during this chat, that have come about. And that is that most people are not aware of the photo reconnaissance unit. Mm -hmm. And um, in a way, that's quite a travesty, because it did so much for the war effort mm -hmm. by giving information directly to the Admiralty on how to plan the tactics and the Allied tactics going forward in order to win the war. It amazed me that it hadn't been recognised. And also the attrition rate at the time, you know, was horrendous. In 1942, they were the, it was the second most dangerous unit to be attached to, second only to a carrier-based torpedo bomber squadron. You know, you had a 33% chance of living for 13 weeks. Wow. You know, whereas Bomber Command, mm. I think, was a 44% chance yeah. of li surviving a tour. Well, there was no tour in the photo reconnaissance unit. Yeah. You were on missions. You were granted leave as and when leave came up and were available. And, you know, the sporadic nature of it meant you weren't on operations every day, but you could potentially, at a busy time, be two to three missions a week. Yeah. Um, your likelihood of survival was not high. And it's not recorded. And so many people in talking to people involved with the industry, whilst they're aware that people take photographs uh, from aeroplanes, it, uh, 
the fact that this happened during the war was was foreign to people. And then you look at where the Royal Air Force is going now, and it's all eyes in the skies. We know all about the drones yeah. and all this sort of thing. So actually, our modern-day Royal Air Force now is a lot closer to the operations of the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit yeah, in World true. War II than it is. Mm. I'm thinking a lot of people are going to relate from this. And obviously, with the story of... Uh, you know, the Great Escape, uh, it was 75 years this year since yep. the Great Escape. So we got heavily involved with the national commemorations of that. And uh, people were aware of this and said, you know, this is this is a travesty. And, and, and someone particularly not too far away from me uh, <laughs> did point out that uh, this ought to change. Uh, and we are incredibly grateful for actions that have gone ahead from there um, to move towards a national memorial for the photographic reconnaissance unit and you know a number of people that I've, I've spoken to have all gone oh right so the aeroplane is going to be a national memorial well actually no the aeroplane is not going to be a national memorial no no um we feel that there should be two elements to what we do here now i love a good museum don't get me wrong. Yep. I mean no offence to people in the things <laughs> I'm about to say. However, <laughs> I personally feel that um, days of going to museums to read a lot of boards and look at pictures and things like that possibly are not going to connect with the generation that we want to connect with nowadays. Right. I feel things need to be a lot more hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, and through experiences, you can potentially relate to people more as the things that happened so whilst there needs to be a focal point as in a location yeah where there ought to be a memorial and you know quite frankly i think uh we've got an eye on a place that we would like to do this in london that's very relevant to uh where the information ended up however there ought to be a living memorial and as i said the airplane is not or should not be the focus for a living memorial because People can only really see an air show, uh, an aeroplane if it's at an air show yeah. or if it's a museum, <coughs> mm -hmm. which means that unless they can attend that particular thing, then they're going to miss out on this. And we thought we need something a little bit more inclusive. Yeah. So what we've created as well is the Sandy Gun Aerospace Careers Program because there is a massive shortage of engineers in the aviation sector. And it's growing because the rate that people are joining the industry is not one, meeting the rate of attrition as people retire, and two, it's not demanding the, the uh, meeting the demands that is happening through the expansion. Right, okay. So we thought, what better <laughs> than, you know, most of the guys who flew Sandy Spitfire were engineers. So we've got a link there with the engineering. And also, because we've got a motorsport link, which uses aerodynamics, and we've got the aviation link, which obviously uses aerodynamics, yeah. you've got a huge link to the aerospace sector across many platforms so we thought right what better way these guys who gave up their education uh and their jobs that they had to go to war to fight for the country and in some cases their youth too in, indeed yeah um you know of of the six people who flew sandy spitfire two survived the war you know and yeah. so <laughs> so that's what we do so three quarters of the people 75 percent of those who flew this airplane did not come home from the war god that's such a high percentage it is and yeah. you know uh, one of the survivors ended up in developmental testing of airplanes things like that. so there's a huge engineering aerospace thing we thought right what better way than 
the opportunities that these guys left behind or were never able to complete are offered to the next generation now. And that becomes our living memorial. That's very cool. So we have the Sandy Gun Careers Program, which yeah. will relate to these stories, and it will help and assist, and it goes out to schools. We've launched, we launched in September on Sandy Gun's 100th birthday. Right. And uh, it's been incredibly well-received across the UK with schools and colleges and foundations. And the industry, industry are getting behind it because they, they see the, the need of STEM uh, subjects being put into schools and we're going yep. right what better way than to travel to the schools telling the story of what happened and why we're doing what we're doing but also how that links into the future yes and we can talk about what happened in the past yeah and how we use what we learn from the past in the future and how you know they've all heard of drones they might be getting drones for Christmas. <laughs> you know, the purpose of a drone. What is the purpose of the drone going forward? Well, it's doing exactly what the photo of Constance did. Yeah. And they can relate to see how these things have gone. And that, I think, for me and the team that are around us is, is the way to remember as a living memorial. But we obviously have to advertise that living memorial. And we can put it out on social media and we can put it out to schools. However, we've got the Spitfire. <laughs> And what we've realized is that the Spitfire actually is a big attraction to a lot of people. Yes. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the parental generation of those that we are looking to attract who will know what a Spitfire is. Yeah. You've got air shows, which are the second largest public events in the UK for attracting people in. Are they really that? I didn't realize they yeah, they're they the second Yeah, absolutely wow. huge. They're second only to football. <laughs> right. <laughs> Says a lot about the country. Yeah. So, so... <laughs> You've got this situation where you can put an aeroplane out that has got an incredible people story behind it yeah. that relates to so much of industry and people go, wow, I want to learn some more about that. And you go, yeah, but this aeroplane supports a youth scheme, yeah, which is the memorial to these guys. And it means that it won't ever gather dust. Yep. You know, you've got a traveling roadshow effectively that travels around the UK going directly to schools and young people, giving help and advice and creating a network of those that do take that help and advice and contacts and then get into industry that will help and grow. And it propagates from there. And hopefully those people that are coming through now who in 10 years' time will have a career and go, yeah, I'll give something back. I'll get involved with that and drive it through, which means that long after I'm you know, dribbling away at home and not capable of, of, of getting into London for a meeting, there will be other people who will be driving that same story through yeah. and helping the next generation go through. And what better memorial to have 100, 150, 200 years on from it happening than that living memorial? And that's what we're doing with Sandy Spitfire. That is, that's amazing. That's, that's incredible. Oh, that's... It's uh, fantastic, it's, isn't it's it? It's so good because it is, like you say, it's a fully living... Memorial is something that will grow and will yeah will change and will adapt, but will still have this amazing story driving through its center the whole time. That's right. And you've got this special little blue Spitfire <laughs> that's all painted blue. It's not in camouflage. Yeah, you can go, that's different, and that will attract in. And obviously, you know, we can't we can't run a Spitfire all the time, <laughs> but you know, for memorial purposes and for effectively drawing it, it's the hook. Yeah, it's that 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 special hook that goes this is different yeah and it's all free we don't charge the children anything they can write to us and say can we have a presentation can you provide me with information can we do this can we do that and we will aim 
in that age group, which at the moment is 15 to 18, yep. to give that help and guidance and advice to those that are wanting to get into the industry uh, to get them there. And the schools have just grabbed this with both hands because it's up to date. We've got people who are actively within industry across lots of different fields. And it's not just, you know, we're not just catering with pilots or engineers. It can be uh, management. It can be aviation finance. It can be um, safety systems, people who make parachutes, people who make ejector seats. We've had requests from uh, from young people who are interested in, um, you know, service careers or, you know, in, in um, you know, development of equipment, be it seating, be it missiles, all of this thing. There's such a range, air traffic control, cabin crew. There's there's a large number of aviation-based subjects that are not catered for. Yeah. And by having representatives from those industries, not just at management level, but, you know, people who have spent 10, 15 years who can say, yeah, we're there. We know where the industry is going. This is what we look for in the people who are coming through. This is the way it's going to go. And pass that information through us directly into the schools has a huge appeal. Oh, well, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm dumbstruck. That's, that's <laughs> incredible. And if, 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 no, if people were just hearing about it sort of now, is it easily, easily findable online for... for yeah, so, so um, we run two, two websites. We have a very big social media uh, presence, mainly because that's where most of our yeah. generational target sits. Yes. Um, so we have a Facebook page. And uh, we have a Twitter page and we have an Instagram page. And you can search Sandy Spitfire or Spitfire AA810. We'll take you to any of those. We've got the two websites. So we've got uh, www.spitfireaa810.co.uk, which takes you to the very historical element of the project and why we're doing it. And then our youth scheme uh, site is www.acp hyphen aa810.co.uk and on there it's it's aimed directly at 15 to 18 year olds so it gives a bit of background on what we're doing but it's also giving background on what we offer and how they can get involved and it's a very simple process in that there's a downloadable application form on there right and uh, you fill that out send it to us and you tell us what you're looking for, where you're wanting to go. And you don't have to know. You know, you could be open to advice saying, well, I like these things. What do you think we should do? And we can say, look, you've got a range of options here. Um, so we're developing an app that's available to young people where they'll be able to download that from us. And uh, that will be searchable so they can put in things that they're interested in that will give them direct and up-to-date current information on recommended qualifications things that they can do to improve their chances yeah um what the life is like you know we don't want to we don't want to sort of gold plate things or sugar plate things yeah. you know people can look at it and go well this is this is gonna be a fantastic thing you go, yes it is it is fantastic but there will be downsides yeah. to it there will be impacts on your social life or your or your level of fatigue in certain jobs over <laughs> something else or you know financially there will be some things that will cost a lot to to train for and yeah. you need to look at this but we can offer advice on the routes to go through it but you need to understand the all of the pros and all of the cons and we will have examples of people who have done all of these things and the different routes so people can just be fully informed of the way they want to go and then as part of that they'll be able to you know ask to attend a presentation at the moment we're going to a lot of schools so we have schools forthcoming uh, for these presentations and if we've got somebody who's maybe not part of that school 
uh, that's wanting to attend, but it's fairly local to them, we can invite them in and say, yes, by all means, please come to this presentation and go from there. And our aim is, is that, you know, it's not going to cost these young people anything mm-hmm. to come and attend. That's not the aim. Yeah. You know, industry are driving forward to get these people. Yes. And it's yeah. to industry that we turn to say, help us help you yeah Mm. we've got something very good here that's very much in demand that 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 people want um because even if the people we're talking to right now themselves are going well i'm not 15 you know i can't i can't get involved with this they might know a 15 year old who is interested Mm. in doing this and say all right guys you need to you need to go and look at this uh, and spread the word, and that's that's the important thing. Thank you so much for, for talking to us today. <laughs> no a, lot, a, a lot of what you've said tonight, what we talked about, was a, was an education to me. I will say, and I enjoyed every second of it. So, well, thank my, you very much. My hope is is that, like I say, the, the 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 great escape element of this, which is obviously you know as prisoner of war and looking at this, is, is your part. And yeah. what I hope is is that that will grow and that that element will come to fruition. But perhaps where this one differs slightly is that um, a lot of these prisoners of war, their actions have gone into books mm. yeah. and there it has stopped. And this, in this case, whilst we've not got as much information as maybe we have on some other people and their escape attempts, we have got something that is living and continuing and growing thereafter. So it hasn't just stopped yeah. at a book. And, you know, I'll be happy as long as Sandy re- becomes one of those names that is as linked with these escapes. Mm as some of the others that are more well known um, but we just help continue to write his story that's yeah. important yeah no the interesting thing from the perspective of this episode was the fact that absolutely he was involved in the escape a very famous in fact the most famous escape ar- arguably and was very heavily involved you know he was one of uh, the 76 that got out he was sadly one of the 50 who were shot um, and from a personal point of view I've told you this before you know i i've i've known the name of sandy gunn all my life um or as long almost as long as i can remember so it i really wanted to get get this episode in um but also i love the fact that okay and unlike some of the other escapes that we've covered he ultimately wasn't successful in escaping but there's a whole story that doesn't end on the 6th of april 1944 you know most escapes they stop Mm. as we know from having done a number of episodes (laughs) they kind of you know they they stop and sometimes one or two of them have an interesting backstory and went on to do some very interesting things but there's almost (laughs) a 75 year hiatus with sandy gun and then i mean i think it kicks off all over again and 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 the 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 current story is just as fascinating as his life you know that is there's a really nice balance to it and i wanted to cover both in this episode and make sure both were covered and there is one final point to make which is uh there is a book oh yes (laughs) (laughs) um for for all the talk of saying you know that's right i mean whilst we've gone through a lot of uh sandy's andy's story tonight um it did go into a book Mm. um that uh i wrote and (laughs) I published for the project, so it was the first independent publish, um, and that uh, we produce as a project and we sell through our website. It's the only place you can buy it. It's not on wholesale, uh, for the main reason that uh, the money we produced from selling that book, as well as a couple of prints and some other bits and pieces that we've got, uh, gets reinvested back into 
this project. But in a way, more importantly, it gets his story out. Mm-hmm. And the more people that read it and the more people that understand it, uh, that's the important thing. And it covers its cost and it allows us to buy little bits and pieces here and there that will that will go into the project. And we've been very fortunate with the people who do support the project and its rebuild are incredibly generous. Um, both in services and financially and, and in, in their time and materials um, is allowing us to rebuild Sandy Spitfire. But, but to engage with people, um, the book is, is our way forward and it's, it's, it's his life story. And whilst that story is evolving and I'm continuing to research, we are planning to fly the aeroplane again in 2023. We're going to do something very special with the aeroplane in 2023. Um, And my aim is around Remembrance Sunday 2023, the second edition of Sandy's Spitfire will come out, which is less than four years away now, so I better get a move on. (laughs) Um, And that will hopefully be all of the resultant information. So, you know, getting the book out there has brought in more information. Doing things like this will bring in more information. Yeah. And that has to be worked on and it has to be continued. And maybe it's 2023 when I draw the line under <laughs> right. the story, yeah. I think. So So that's not a reason to not buy Sandy Spitfire <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, you know, it will come out again in a few years' time. But um, the uh, for the moment, it's the definitive story of what we know. Mm-hmm. And we'll keep on working from there. And if people do have information that uh, could be of use, uh, I'm always willing to hear from people, which they can get hold of me through the website. Okay, I was going to say, is that yeah. the easiest way? For yeah, the, the easiest way. So we have a generic email. Um, we have a one of our team members manages all our social media. Yeah, uh, and a contact through social media will get to me, um, but also through our website, uh, the email to the info at spitfireaa810.co.uk um, will come to me uh, within a couple of hours so um, that's that's probably the best way well if anyone listening does have any information or anything related to sandy or the pru or anything related please do get in touch with us directly we'll be more than happy to pass that on and i think all that's left is to say thank you to Tony for joining us and for what is a fantastic episode. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. It's, thank no, you very it's much. a real pleasure. It's, it's been no brilliant. Thank, no, you. thank you. Okay, um, well, thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, if you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at FIT. W-I-O. Um, if you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.